Hello there, you Awakening Wonders, wherever you are. Thank you for joining us. It's so important that you follow us and support us now because the government tried to shut down our means for making a living in an extraordinary move. So now your support is absolutely vital. You are part of a movement now. There's no avoiding it. There's no evading it. And while we're celebrating journalism, independence, truth-telling, I'm excited to introduce Dave DeCamp, the news editor at antiwar.com and host of Antiwar News, whose content we continually use because of his intrepid personal principles because remember when journalism used to mean investigating the actions of the powerful that we can attack the establishment that we can build new systems together dave thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me russell i'll just let you know that if you're watching this anywhere other than rumble we're going to be exclusively available on rumble now you want to know how you can support us you can support us by joining us on rumble download the app Get Rumble. That's how you can support us. They're committed to free speech. We're committed to free speech. And if you want to support us further, press the red button and you can support us directly. But your attention, your consciousness and your time are so much more important than your money. Mate, one of the things that you've been reporting on is this sort of curious story that in spite of propaganda, there's been little shift in territorial control uh, in Ukraine. There's been incredible loss of life and it seems incredible opportunity for profit. So what are these new revelations about there being very little in the way of territorial shift reveal. Yeah, so Ukraine launched its big counteroffensive back in June. And, you know, there's been a lot of kind of media report with a bit of a slant uh, trying to portray that Ukraine is gaining territory and that they are, you know, that they do have a chance of winning this thing. And they have been gaining some very, you know, incremental areas. But a recent report from the New York Times that looked at, over at all the territory that's changed hands this year in 2023, it showed that Russia has actually gained more territory this year. But overall, it's a very small amount of territory. Only 500 square miles has changed hands. Russia gained about 300 and the Ukrainian side about 183. So those small little areas, I mean, if you look at the map, it really shows, you know, the front lines have barely changed. And in that time, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have likely been killed. We don't know the casualties for sure on either side because there's kind of it's a kind of a strange thing that we don't know how many people are actually being killed because both sides are hiding their casualty figures. But it's pretty clear. And from people that I trust, they believe hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have been killed this year alone. And lots of Russians are being killed as well. And this is a war that the U.S. and NATO have chosen to continue. The, the really infuriating thing about this is that before the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the discord leaks came out. And one of those leaks revealed that the U.S. did not believe Ukraine could regain much territory. And there was other signs, you know, officials speaking to The New York Times anonymously, really kind of buried in their reports we're saying, yeah, we don't think that they have what, what it takes. They don't have enough weapons. Russia has really dug in. Russia spent the last winter really strengthening their defenses. So they knew it wouldn't be successful, and they pushed for it anyway. Right before the counteroffensive started, Secretary of State Antony Blinken came out and gave this big speech against a ceasefire. And he actually he didn't just say he opposed the ceasefire. He opposed the pause in fighting. He disparaged other countries that were calling for peace. So this is what we're dealing with. And now months later that the lines have barely moved and so many people are dead, they're determined to keep this thing going. That's what's really, uh, you know, they just want an open-ended conflict. They want to turn Ukraine into this na huge NATO bulwark uh, on Russia's border. 
Even in his recent address to the UN, Biden said that Russia and Russia alone can end this war. Russia solitarily and solely are the cause of this war. And as you point out, even to talk of peace is regarded as a kind of um, militaristic heresy. Uh, I wonder what you think the significance is of Lockheed Martin, for example, announcing profit opportunities for up to $10 billion and what the likely motivations of this war are if we're not seeing significant territorial shift and it isn't the counteroffensive didn't succeed. What, what does this tell us about the motivations? Well, yeah, there's certainly a profit motive here. I mean, the US and the UK actually recently uh, according to a report from The Telegraph, the British are apparently out of weapons to send to Ukraine. Um, but by dumping all of this, these weapons in there, you know, this gives the the arms makers like Lockheed Martin, like Raytheon, you know, they're replenishing all these stockpiles. You have all the Eastern European countries, especially Poland, really increasing their military budget. I mean, it's a total boon for them. And sometimes, you know, it's they're very candid about it. If you remember Alexei Reznikov, who was uh, Zelensky's defense minister, who was recently fired, he said, you know, I invite all the Western, you know, defense contractors to test their weapons in Ukraine. You know, he opened his country as a testing ground for weapons. There's recently a report in the Wall Street Journal that said Ukraine is one giant arms fair. And it was talking about how specifically Lockheed Martin, you know, when it comes to the weapons makers in the U.S. and, and the U.K., the heavy hitters is always Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Of course, there's others of BAE Systems and Northrop Grumman. But Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, or they call them RTX now, they're really making money. And the HIMARS rocket systems that the U.S. has given Ukraine, that they're in hot demand now. They were made by Lockheed Martin. The Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, those are the ones they could fire off their shoulder. They were obsolete. Uh, they they stopped making them in the 90s. And now all of a sudden there's a hot demand for them and they're, they're starting to make them again. They're calling in engineers who worked in like the 80s, like old guys that are retired to help get the production going. So it's very clear. And who's running this thing is Biden's defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, who came from the board of Raytheon. Right. His, literally his job before running the Pentagon was at Raytheon. So it's very obvious that this is a big part of this whole thing is the the money to be made on these weapons and it's complete corruption and cronyism i'm astonished to see that sort of the nostalgia craze for the 80s and 90s has reached actual militarism that it's like sort of speak and spell and uh, simon says war weaponry from tomy and mb games like the, the kind of nostalgia craze that you see in our sort of love of serials like lucky charms as extended to bazookas what a terrifying and extraordinary situation when you said that the ukraine is like an arms fair i was reminded of the uh, Spanish Civil War's potential function as a kind of trial for the subsequent global war, i.e. in particular that the fascists were supported by Nazi uh, um, the weaponry, particularly from the uh, air and stuff. And it seems to me that these kind of practices have always been available. The idea that military technology is piloted in uh, potentially lesser conflicts prior to 
it's staggering to consider given that Russia are one of the combatant nations uh, uh, even bigger conflicts even uh, involving you know China potentially even to talk about what's going on with Taiwan and perhaps we'll touch on that in a minute but for a moment um this is in, intended in no way to disparage the people of Ukraine whose suffering should be paramount in all of our thoughts and in particular with our advocacy for and even demands for peace. But Ukraine is understood to be a pretty corrupt country when it comes to politics, which country isn't. Um, so when US, the United States acknowledge that they're aware of corruption in Ukraine, why are they so willing to afford the uh, corrupt government the potential uh, for corruption on this scale? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question because Ukraine was always notorious for its corruption, uh, you know, in the years leading up to Russia's invasion, when they used to ask Biden, you know, when is Ukraine going to be brought into NATO? And he said, well, like, they got to work on corruption, which is something to hear coming from Biden, considering after the coup in 2014, that his son Hunter got a job on the state on the board of a Ukrainian natural gas company. So I always have to point that out. You know, Biden shouldn't really be talking about corruption. Uh, but anyway, you know, it was it was well known. And when this thing first started, when Russia first invaded and they started pouring these billions of dollars in weapons into Ukraine, and it's not just weapons, they also give them what they call direct budgetary aid, which is money, billions of dollars that they give to the government to pay government salaries, to pay gov for government services. They're actually subsidizing small businesses as well. There was a recent report on 60 Minutes and they talked to a lady who ran a, a knitwear company. She was showing off her sweaters that were subsidized by the American taxpayer. So there's all sorts of other ways that they're spending in, in this notoriously corrupt country. And they kind of downplayed that for a while in the beginning of this war and the media went along with it, but it kind of became impossible to keep hiding this. Recently, Zelensky sacked six of de deputy defense ministers. That That's all the deputy defense ministers. He fired them over these uh, reports that they were, you know, buying things at inflated prices. And then obviously the implication there is that they were skimming off the top. So if all six of them just they just got fired in September and this war has been going on for a year and a half. You know, how much have they been skimming this whole time? Um, and, you know, just the fact that they are doing this with all this corruption, I think it goes to show that they're just determined to keep this proxy war going. It doesn't really matter. And there was recently a, a leaked uh, document strategy document from the State Department and it was kind of their long-term plans for Ukraine. And it was all about how they got to root out corruption, how corruption is this huge problem. So they are much more concerned about it than they're letting on. And it said that they're willing to maybe leverage some of the economic aid, but not the military aid. That doesn't matter, even though, of course, there's the risk of these rockets being sold to all sorts of people. You know, they could end up all over the world, but it just doesn't matter. They just want to keep this thing going. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Isn't it possible that the recent changes with the House Speaker uh, will mean a delay for this additional $24 billion of funding? Is that possible? Is that good? Is it valuable in any way? Yeah, so it's really kind of interesting what's going on here. So Biden wants another $24 billion to spend on this war. And it has the majority of support in Congress still. But over in the House, there is a decent amount of Republicans who are opposed. They don't want to give more money to Ukraine. 
And because of that, Kevin McCarthy was forced to strip Ukraine aid from this short-term funding bill that they just passed to keep the government funded. Um, and Matt Gates, who's a Republican from Florida who launched the effort against McCarthy, he's been very good on Ukraine. He has opposed it from the beginning, and he launched the effort to oust McCarthy after accusing him of making a secret deal to bring the Ukraine aid to the floor for a vote. So now there's going to be a new House Speaker election that's expected to be next week. And in that time, they can't do any legislative action, or at least from what I understand, a lot of this stuff is very confusing and there's a lot of procedural stuff they can do. Um, but it's definitely disrupting things. And the one of the House speakers, one of the Republicans who has announced that he will be running for House speaker is Jim Jordan, and he's voted against all the Ukraine stuff the whole time. So this is significant. I was kind of more pessimistic for a while saying, I, you know, they're all going to support it. They're going to keep this thing going. But what's happening here is not insignificant. If the House speaker the 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 third person the third the house speaker is the third highest level official in the US government they're second in line to the presidency if the you know behind the vice president if the, something happens to the president if the president dies or something so having a house speaker that's opposed to this proxy war would be very significant now biden gave a speech the other day and at the end he said something well he didn't give a speech he was talking to some reporters but at the end he said something like I'll, I'll, you know, there's other ways we could get the money, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. So unfortunately, there probably is other ways that they could keep this thing going. I wonder if you ever have time to inquire why reporting that is this specific and oppositional isn't found within the legacy media. What do you think is the importance of independent media when it comes to proposing counter narratives? How dangerous do you think it is to present these kind of stories i know that like i know people in our sphere that say that it, this is the subject that will get you cancelled this is the subject that will get you shut down uh, other people think it's big pharma but certainly there are interests that seem marshal to assure that the legacy media maintains simply a, a position of simple amplification of the message of uh, let's call it the establishment or normalizing the agenda of the establishment whether that's the advance of authoritarianism the advance of potentially unnecessary wars how is it that you get your information why is it that this information is kept out of the mainstream and how do you feel about it morally and personally yeah. So what's interesting is that the truth is out there. The truth, you know, you could read between the lines of the mainstream media. You know, it's what they're saying is uh, factual, but not truthful necessarily. And a lot of times, and you know what a big part of my job is, is reading these reports from the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, the Times over in London. And you know, a lot of times buried in those reports are the kernels of truth, like the counter, like the fact that they didn't think the counteroffensive would succeed. They would have a story about something completely unrelated, related to Ukraine. And then buried in there, you see a Ukrainian official say, we don't have the weapons to do this counteroffensive. We can't do this. Um, and the media goes along with the narrative, even though if they might be reporting on factual things. It's about narrative control. And you see that with the unprovoked invasion claim, which is one of the, you know, they're trying to change language. They're trying to say it, it's unprovoked, even though everything's provoked. I, I mean, murder is provoked generally, unless somebody's a sociopath, but 
it's always provoked. And recently, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, he said, he basically said Putin invaded because he didn't want NATO in Ukraine. And that's the head of NATO. And and they accuse us. The, the, the accusation that we always get is that we're on Putin's payroll or that we're, um, you know, working for Russia or working for China is the new big one now. And it's just complete nonsense. You know, we're, we're us at antiwar.com, you know, we're Americans who care about uh, our country and our people and, and don't want our government out there, you know, causing more destruction around the world. That's our priority. And we talk about these things long before it happens. Um, you know, I haven't been doing it very long. I started working full time in 2019, but the website antiwar.com has been around since 1995. They were writing about warning against meddling in Ukraine in like 2000, in the early 2000s. So we're, we're ahead of, you know, we're on top of this stuff. And then when a big thing happens, like the invasion, you know, continuing what we do, we get accused of being Russian stooges or whatever, just because the narrative has completely shifted, you know, COVID kind of ended, it didn't end, but you know, the Ukraine war became the big thing as soon as Russia invaded and anybody speaking out against it got hit with this label. And thankfully things have changed just because of the reality of what's going on in the U S and this war is dragging on. And and what are the results that we're seeing? It's just a stalemate and death and destruction. And it's just horrific. So more people are questioning and polls are showing that the opposition is growing, thankfully. It's odd because that's such a predictable outcome. And indeed, as you said, the reporting on antiwar.com, which I recommend all of you use and follow if you want to be well informed on this issue, has, has been saying, oh, Ukrainian war, hold on, that could be complicated. What about the 2014 coup? What about the infringement of NATO on former, former Soviet Union territories? And when you report on that stuff, when you don't comply, when you don't follow their preferred line, you're right, they do reach for extraordinary slurs. And this one that, uh, like... You could be a, a Putin apologist or a Chinese stooge. I don't even know that that actually is how things work. Like the the Chinese government would like approach. Like I mean, idea what they had to say if, if the Chinese government or Putin, especially with what I've been through, said, "Listen, <laughs> we're prepared to give you some support." I'd go, "Well, let's talk terms." What are you saying? You know, like I don't think that the world works like that. I think that's what's what's far more common is that the sort of there's a set of converging interests between legacy media and the state that are uh, ideological but certainly financial the way that they are funded the, the pundits that they use it's such a sort of collaborative porous immersive and sort of interlocked network of interests that the sort of simplistic uh, name calling that uh, you're a Putin apologist that's Outrageous. And I watched, for example, recently um, Hillary Clinton talking to Jen Psaki on something called Inside with Jen Psaki. And I thought, well, yeah, that is what it is. It is inside. It's inside the system amplifying its message. And they talked about, like, you know, as we know, Putin medals in elections. As we know, Putin is an authoritarian dictator. This is an unprovoked war. And all there are in terms of interlocution and communication is just the nodding along. Like, that is the function of the media. You don't see questions asked. Like, you won't ever get you interviewing Anthony Blinken. You won't get you interviewing uh, Hillary Clinton or any figure in power because they avoid those questions and they, beyond avoiding them, they delegitimize that line of inquiry. They smear any form of 
dissent, presumably because when this war started, a lot of people would have gone, oh, what, Ukraine-Russia? That's going to go on for ages and ages, isn't it? You can't beat Russia in wars. They're a nuclear superpower. Isn't this going to just drain resources and won't it endlessly escalate? I mean, one of the pledges that Biden offered was that you wouldn't see troops uh, like, you know, he said US troops, and as far as I know, that's not necessarily happened yet. But I know that um, you referred to that Telegraph article, and I feel like the UK are putting troops into Ukraine for training purposes, and there's a suggestion that BAE systems might start operating out of there. So you do see this incremental escalation that's completely at odds with even the narrative they offer you at the beginning of the conflict. And what do you think about that aspect of it, the way that the narrative alters and shifts and amplifies? Yeah, I always think about Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor. In you know the early days of the war, when they were trying to get Germany to send planes and tanks, he said, no, 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 we're not doing it. I'm trying to prevent World War III, is what he would say. I'm trying to prevent nuclear war. Well, now he's allowed the transfer of planes. He's allowed, they, they're sent the German-made Leopard tanks. So you know, is he taking his country toward World War III? By his previous logic, he is. And you mentioned the troops. So recently, your new uh, defense secretary, Shaps, I'm kind of blanking on his name. Shaps yeah, Grant is, Shaps. Grant Shaps. He suggested that the British uh, troops that have been training Ukrainians inside the UK, oh, maybe we should start doing that training inside Ukraine. And then Rishi Sunak came out the day after and he said, no, that's down, you know, that's down the line. Don't worry about it. You know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But British troops have been in Ukraine. The Times reported in April 2022 that British SAS soldiers were inside Ukraine training Ukrainian soldiers on anti-tank weapons outside of Kiev. A few months later, the New York Times reported that some NATO countries had special operations forces in Ukraine and the Brit and the UK was listed on there. And the, the US also has a handful of special operations forces. And, you know, that was revealed by the Discord leaks. They have about 14, according to this leak. This leaked Pentagon document and and the the British had 50, which is a significant presence. That's not just embassy security. Um, so they're there doing things, and there's also CIA on the ground, of course, and we don't know what they're doing. That's part of the transparency issue. Um, you know, they they could be doing who knows how close they are to the front lines. We don't know. But if the UK started sending troops openly, that would be another very big escalation. So it's something to keep an eye out for. But it's worth pointing out that they've actually been there. Now, we don't know if they're still there, but based on these reports from these certain time periods, there were, you know, there's a, enough evidence that I believe it's safe to say there were British troops on the ground in Ukraine. Tucker Carlson, God love him, said that it's likely that there will be a hot war between the United States and Russia within a year. What do you think about that? I uh, really hope that he's wrong because, you know, that can't happen. And that used to be the attitude was we can't go to war with Russia with the, you know, we can't go to war with the Soviet Union, can't go to war with Russia. They have thousands of nukes. It can't happen. But obviously that attitude has shifted now that things keep escalating. I mean, we're doing the U.S. and NATO are doing everything short of having troops there fighting Russia. They're giving them all the weapons. They're giving them all the intelligence. And Russia knows this. You know, there's been all these drone attacks inside Russia in Crimea, and they're using Western intelligence for that. Russia knows it. 
Russia has, if they want to go to war with NATO, they have the pretext to bomb a NATO base in Poland. Right now, we are relying on the restraint of this madman, <laughs> Vladimir Putin, that they keep, you know, that's what we hear about him is that he's some sort of madman. But then they also say, oh, he's just bluffing when he's talking about nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, I try not to be too alarmist, but we're at the point now where if we, you wake up tomorrow morning and the U.S. and Russia, NATO and Russia are at war, you know, don't be surprised. It's not going to be no. a shock. And, you know, I really hope that this opposition in D.C. and other places in Europe and Slovakia, they just elected a government that that wants to end military aid to Ukraine. I hope that keeps growing because we really need to end this thing. We're at that point now where something could spark it. You know, there's all these plane, NATO and Russian planes are always having these close encounters. There was that Ukrainian air defense missile that hit Poland last year. And they said it was Russia. You know, it's just where we're at again, just if we wake up and the headline is NATO at war with Russia, you know, we tried to warn you. Refer <laughs> it to some of the headlines I've seen recently. Now the reliance on Russian restraint is, um, it seems extraordinary that that would be sort of part of a strategy and the confusing messaging also around the confusing messaging around. Yeah, he's bluffing. He's mad. He's ill. All of this sort of almost sort of antiquated 20th century propaganda seems extraordinarily misguided. And while I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, so why is this important? Of course, it's important because of the potential to provoke a superpower into Armageddon, which has been addressed and identified it, as you said, by the German Chancellor, even Biden himself a few years ago said, you know, that would be the end of the world. And the, the very point of a Cold War was because a hot war was inconceivable. The uh, proxy war is even an acknowledgement that the, America's imperialist interests can be better met. And these are not the interests of the American people, of course. I to clarify but of the military industrial complex and the establishment elites that masquerade behind the veil of democracy uh, this is I mean, you've seen the show before right this is what we talk about um and what i um what I wanted to sort of say is that the reason that it's important to continually interrogate this is because we have foreclosed on the possibility of a different world where the population of any country yours mine might say is that what I want to happen with my taxpayer dollars? Well, like if the if indeed as claimed the role of the United States is to act as emissaries and peacekeepers and referees in global conflicts that purportedly have no benefit to them, then it ought to be at the directive of the population. Certainly, for example, the concomitant Hawaiian fires demonstrated a sort of clear public opinion preference for support on domestic issues rather than foreign wars. And the idea that that kind of conversation is equated with, you know, Putin apologism or a lack of regard for the plight of Ukrainian people is reductive and simplistic and untrue because of the sheer number of conflicts around the world that America continue to inspire, fund and enact. And I suppose... When I think of what we're doing, when we're dealing with someone like you who has a particular expertise and a background and a history dealing with the subject that you're dealing with, I feel like it's important to acknowledge that what we're saying is we're being misinformed and lied to and there are different ways of organising reality. It's not like there's just some invisible trajectory that sweeps your taxpayer dollars into the, the sort of profitable war machine. And, and it's something that should be discussed. And in order to discuss it, you have to be well informed. And in order to do that, you have to have a media that's not just amplifying the the agenda of the powerful. Do you think it is conceivable that people could 
reject the ongoing support of this uh, of this conflict and therefore demand a peaceful resolution. Yeah, like I said, you know, I think that the opposition is growing and we are in kind of this new media age, especially, you know, with this show, you know, being on Rumble, being, you know, they want to shut you down, but you have your outlets that, you know, they can't control. And antiwar.com is a very unique thing because, again, this website was founded in 1995 and they they kind of cut their teeth opposing the NATO bombing of uh, Kosovo. And they had sources on the ground finding out NATO, you know, was bombing civilian targets. And it was kind of the first thing of its kind online. And now since then, because of that, you know, they were targeted by the FBI. They were under FBI surveillance. Um, But now there's kind of there's so much of this now. There's a lot available that, uh, you know, ordinary people that might not necessarily really pay attention or, or try to look for the truth um, in these, when it comes to conflicts like this, you know, they could find it a lot easier. Now Um, you could kind of stumble across it. So I think that's kind of, that's, you know, what I try to do. And the reason why I, I am a news editor, why I just talk about the news all day. It's my, you know, it's my focus is because if you just follow the news, if you just have the context of the events that have happened, again, it's all out there for us. You know, if you just follow along, you know, they they lie by omission. Of course, this is what, you know, Chomsky wrote about is that, you know, one example I always think of re- recently, Iran seized uh, two oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. If back in, I believe it was around April or May. And the context that was missing from that story was that a couple of weeks before that, the U.S. stole a shipment of Iranian oil from a, They forced an oil tanker to sail to the U.S. and they stole the oil. So they seized the tanker and Iran responded. And you don't hear about what, the, what caused it, what provoked it. <laughs> you never, they never want to include that. So it's just a matter of knowing, like, it's kind of, you don't need to be super informed, just kind of be aware of, of what's happening. And when it comes to Ukraine, and I think it just has to be clear to more people that considering what the U.S. has done to the Middle East and North Africa for the past 20 years, you know, how can they think that they really care about Ukrainians? How can you believe that that's what this is about? So I think it's kind of just opening more people up to that uh, reality. Yeah. And if when now there seems to be an appetite to... Uh, uh, but Anthony Blinken said that China want to become a dominant world power and want to become sort of a hegemonic uni- unipower, unipolar force and replace the United States. And I, I feel like, is that true? Like, is that how China are behaving? I'm sure they have their own imperialism, colonialism, tyranny, corruption. Of course, I'm sure. But do you think that there is an agenda? I mean, like, I mean, if I imagine for a minute that... It was the US that was surrounded by Chinese military bases rather than the opposite. Or if US or if China were agitating in some sort of off coast former territory to meddle with the uh, economic affairs, as is happening with Taiwan and the semiconductors and stuff, I feel that that would be, well, you know, that would be regarded as extreme hostility. What do you think about this attempt to portray China as an aggressor? Is it unfair? Am I being naive, optimistic? What's going on? If you look at what U.S. policy is right now towards China, you know, when we're speaking militarily, they're not trying to prevent China from taking over the world. They're trying to prevent China from, you know, being the hegemon in Southeast Asia. You know, 
a few hundred miles off their coast. That's what the U.S. is focused on is uh, Taiwan and the South China Sea. And, you know, it's very clear that China, what China has been doing in a lot of instances is a reaction to the U, what the U.S. is doing, especially in Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan, it's it's an issue that's tough to talk about briefly because it's kind of complicated. But when the U.S. and China normalized relations in 1979, the deal was the U.S. would pull their troops out of Taiwan. They would not recognize Taiwan as a country. And they would not flirt with Taiwan's independence. They would, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's an issue for Chinese people in China and mainland China and Taiwan to work out. But in recent years, we've seen, especially when Nancy Pelosi went over there, um, the U.S. is increasing military aid. The U.S. in the in 1982, they released the third joint communique, um, and that was these things they released when the U S and China were normalizing relations to work out certain issues. And in this one, the U S said basically that they would eventually stop selling weapons to Taiwan. Now that's open for interpretation that it's, it's intentionally vague, the language, but this was essentially the deal that the U S made. And now in recent years, arms sales have increased. And this year, president Biden for the first time started giving Taiwan military aid the same way he's arming Ukraine by sending weapons directly from Pentagon stockpiles. This is unprecedented in the era of US-China normalized relations. And they're doing all this in the name of deterrence. They say they need to deter China from invading Taiwan, from blockading Taiwan. But if you look at the past few years, since the US policy toward Taiwan sort of changed, which really happened in the Trump administration, they started uh, loosening restrictions for official government contacts. That's another thing that really irks China is you know US and Taiwanese officials talking. In that time, as the US has increased that military and diplomatic support, we've seen a lot more Chinese military activity around Taiwan. China held their largest ever military drills around Taiwan when Nancy Pelosi went over there. Nancy Pelosi's visit provoked that. So this is the pattern. And it doesn't matter really how you feel about Taiwan, if they should be independent or not, if you're in the U.S. It's just the reality. The more the U.S. does this, the more military pressure Taiwan's going to come under and the more likely a war is going to be. Same thing in the South China Sea. There's this maritime dispute. China makes very sweeping claims to the South China Sea. There's little encounters between Chinese and Philippine vessels. The U.S. has a mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. Whenever a Chinese Coast Guard boat cuts off a Philippine boat, the U.S. comes out and says the U.S. mutual defense treaty with the Philippines applies to attacks on vessels in the South China Sea. So that means the U.S. is saying if you if this maritime dispute over rocks and reefs turns hot, we're going to go to war. So how is China with respect to the U.S., not talking about its own backyard, but how is China you know, the aggressor in this situation when the U.S. is right up? to their uh, nose there and and doing all these things. And 